0: This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. A new right wing strategy to undo progress on discrimination in the criminal justice system is taking aim at non profit bail funds. After a victim of a gunshot wound successfully sued a bail fund for helping free his shooter, the bail project was forced to shut down one of its chapters now right wing groups are going after similar projects including the Minnesota Freedom Fund my guest is elizer darris co executive director of minnesota freedom fund and minnesota freedom fund action welcome to the program elizer
1: thank you so much for having me absolute honor uh, to have an opportunity to speak to both you and also your audience
0: So tell me first what it is that nonprofit bail projects like yours do. Uh, We've all seen bail shops. Um, There are a lot of predatory um, outlets, uh, for-profit outlets that try to take advantage of people who are scrambling to put together bail to be able to win their freedom while they await trial. Uh, How is Minnesota Freedom Fund and projects like it? How are they different?
1: Uh, So what we are attempting to do is basically level the playing field. Um, uh, We know that there's been a stark rise uh, since the 1980s of nearly 400 percent in terms of the um, amount of times that bail uh, is being given to an individual. Uh, Historically, people have been uh, released on what's called their own recognizance, uh, meaning uh, their word that they will come back. Um, There has not been any type of causal connection between bail and someone's reappearance uh, without catching what we call an FTA, which is a failure to appear. Uh, And so our organization exists so that uh, people aren't able to use coercive practices like yelling um, in order to get people to uh, plead guilty to offenses that they otherwise would not plead guilty to across the country, we see more than 90% of people who are uh, charged, who are in custody, uh, plead out. So more than 90% of the charges that are brought uh, against defendants are pled out, uh, particularly when they're not able to uh, post bail and effect um, a defense for themselves. And that is not the purpose of bail. That is not why bail was created. Uh, and we don't want to continue to see abuses um, of those type of public policies within communities.
0: What are some of the threats that your organization is facing? Um, The Republican Party and right wing have for years taken what they call a tough on crime approach. It often becomes an election talking point. Um, We've seen a lot of sort of racist dog whistles over the years that try to link any kind of reform of the criminal justice system to unleashing violent criminals on the streets, quote unquote, So what sort of threats is your organization
1: facing? So our organization faces just all of the threats that you just got through mentioning. It is the um, politicization of um, those types of policies. It is the criminalization um, of black and brown people, black and brown skin, the automatic determination that because of how I look, I must be guilty. If I'm accused, I must therefore be guilty. And that strikes against uh, what should be a fundamental principle? It should strike against the very foundation of the nation, uh, which is enshrined in the u s. Constitution when it says someone is innocent it's a proven guilty. Well when they see someone like me who starts with an offense, there's a there's this presumption that I somehow must be guilty. that strikes against the foundation again of the nation in that the crown would bring an offense against one of their subjects and because the offense was brought they would then affect a consequence you would be hung your head you would be beheaded and a number of other consequences that you would get without even having the opportunity uh to uh, have a public defense uh and to be able to have a determination made by people of your peers as opposed to the state making a decision that we decided that you've done something, you have done it, and we're gonna give you the punishment therefore of that. Uh, and so, you know, what we've seen is the right utilize uh, crime, utilize dog whistles, so they say crime when they mean black, right? Uh, they utilize the images of black and brown faces. Um, there's an, a local organization here called Crime Watch as a matter of fact, and um, of, the, of the 40 people that they displayed, Uh, that they claim that we bailed out, more than 80% of those were black people, despite the fact that more than a quarter of the people who we bail are actually white, but they put virtually none of those faces forward in terms of uh, criminality, in terms of crime. It was all black and brown faces. They've been called out by other organizations and news agencies as well uh, for how they have been proffering forth black and brown faces as the faces of crime, uh, when that actually strikes against Uh, the statistics, not just locally, but also nationally.
0: So uh, I'm here in Los Angeles, where uh, our men's central jail and the LA County jail system is one of the most notorious in the country and the world. Uh, And it's very clear that the longer one, uh, after one is arrested, the longer one remains jailed while awaiting trial, the more one's life can literally be in danger because of the violence within the jail system. Is that the sort of thing or is there anything similar to that that faces Minnesotans in jails, and is that why it's so critical to help people be able to make bail and and, and not be locked up while they're awaiting trial?
1: Yeah, so we don't wanna see coercive practices like jailing literally help to lend themselves Uh, towards the decisions that people make in terms of their own freedom. There should be no fingers that are placed on the scale. That scale that you see behind me, a scale of justice, it's supposed to be equal. It's supposed to be um, um, uh, equally distributed um, in terms of the weight. There should be no fingers on the scale. And so people um, actually do uh, take into consideration their detention in terms of what do they decide to do with their freedom? If a prosecutor is coming to you saying, hey, look, listen, I know the conditions in this jail is bad, Um, but it can get worse. Uh, You can either take this to trial and risk 10 years in prison, uh, or you can go ahead and plead guilty and I'll give you 15 years of probation. Now, when you have rent to pay, you have to pay for your car, you have a job, you have a family that depends on you, you have a dog named Spot. Right when, when, when all of these factors also come to bear in terms of terrible jail conditions, you just want to go home, you may be willing to make decisions that are uh, actually against your own interests. Our preliminary data has actually um, shown us that with the defendants that we have helped to bail, uh, more than a third of the charges that are uh, levied against them are actually dropped. It's significant. Um, uh, the preliminary data that we have is actually showing this, absolutely dropped. Now, I can't imagine what that one-third of individuals that we have helped to bail out, I can't imagine what other decisions they would have made just to get out. Here's something that a lot of people don't know, and it's actually my shock, people. Jails are, actually have worse living conditions than prisons. And this is well known within the, um, within the criminal legal system. Most inmates know this. They know that if they get out of the jail and they just get to the prison, they'll have more time out of their cells. They'll have more access to phone privileges and visiting privileges. The food will be better. They'll have different clothes to wear. And so some people think to themselves, "Yeah, I just want to get out of this jail. What can I do to get out of this jail? That's how horrid some of those jail conditions are. You speak of Los Angeles, an extraordinarily and exceedingly violent jail condition. Now, the prisons aren't too much better, but they're exceedingly violent. This is why there's movements around uh, some of these jail systems. Like in New York, you have Rikers. Rikers is so, so heinous. They have a shutdown Rikers campaign that they built uh, in order to shut down that particular one. Imagine the decisions that people are making in those conditions with their own freedom, even if they're not guilty. They just want to get out of there.
0: Liza, tell me about how Minnesota Freedom Fund uh, Action is aiming to protect the work that you do. Um, Why is it important to head off some of these political threats that you're facing?
1: And so we've attempted to perform our work with advocacy, with working with some of the state actors that are over some of the departments, like, you know, the uh, county attorneys, uh, the judicial system, and other state actors. And and we've been at the table, and we've been having a lot of discussions. We've actually built uh, working groups in which we are trying to disrupt some of the predatory practices that are happening within bail. But what we've seen is that's just not enough. It's not enough, particularly when we have legislatures who are willing to politicize this issue, right, and who are willing to demonize entire groups of people in order to score political points. They just want to win seats, right? Now, this is people's lies. This is nothing political to me. I will sit down with somebody on the right just like I would sit down with somebody on the left and have the same level of discourse. But because we were a 501c3, it limited our ability to fight back. In order to end some of these practices, we have to do this by passing a bill through legislation. And a 501C3 nonprofit is not able to engage in the level of political discourse um, that a 501C4 was. And so we've created the Minnesota Freedom Fund Action in order to allow us to actually take action, to put boots on the ground, to door knock within our community, to to not just uh, support legislation, but to to craft legislation right, and to put forth that legislation and to organize around that legislation. Uh, We've also are going to have an opportunity to help to influence policymakers, because if you can't change the policies, you change the policymakers. You change the people who will put community at the center of their decision making. And because of that, we have made a decision that we are going to step into this fight. We're not going to allow people to, to demonize and criminalize our clients. Our clients are innocent until proven guilty, period. Right. That type of bedrock principle extends even to the black and brown community members that other people would want to shy away from and other people want to look at and say they're guilty. They were arrested, therefore they're guilty. So we have to speak up on behalf of the voiceless. And to do that, we decided to form a 501C4. The Minnesota uh, action is what uh, the Minnesota Freedom Fund action is what we decided to to form, and it's how we're going to fight back. And we are going to fight back. In fact, we're going to launch publicly on February seventh. I hope that you're part of the media that's going to be present for our public launch.
0: Eliza, what sort of legislation are you hoping to craft to protect the work that you do? I, I understand that there are state representatives that are eagerly crafting the opposite legislation to attack your work. So how to protect your work legislatively?
1: So some of it is we we educate and we defend, um, uh, even if we have to litigate. uh, It is unconstitutional to, uh, to create and craft legislation that would limit our ability to associate. We have a right um, to associate uh, with our clients uh, and any passage of legislation that would impact or affect that constitutional protection and that constitutional right uh, of us uh, as an incorporated group. Um, we would fight a, uh, we would fight that vigorously, uh, both at the legislature and also in the courts. Uh, but we are also fighting to get data. Um, we've had some decisions by um, some heads. Um, of some some of the district courts um, here in Minnesota that doesn't allow us to access the type of data that would allow us to paint the type of picture necessary for people to understand the depths um, of the disparities that exist inside of Minnesota when it comes to cash bail and immigration bonds. The only way we can do that is by accessing data. They've denied us that, and so we are going to craft legislation to give us access to just that. Uh, And like I said, we're also gonna continue to vigorously defend ourselves against unconstitutional legislation from being passed as well. And we are also fighting to make sure that uh, bails aren't being uh, issued on some of the exceedingly low level offenses that, that quite frankly, does not impact public safety in the least bit, but it will impact the rights Uh, and the protections of those individuals that are given inordinate bills. In many states and many judicial uh, systems, uh, judges take into account the person's ability to pay. Can you afford the bail that I am about to render unto you? Because if the if the determination that bail exists in order to help to ensure that people come back, well, it also has to be reachable for a person. Uh, part of the US Constitution is that you cannot be given a bail that is excessive. It says if it's excessive and you can't pay it, right? Well, then you're violating that person's rights. You have to take into account the person's ability to pay. They're not doing that here in Minnesota. And so we are fighting to make sure that bails aren't just frivolously being given out and impacting people's rights. I'll give you an example of how we know that some of the bails are frivolously being given out and that it's really not an assessment of public safety. If someone is charged with, with let's say homicide as the offense, and they're giving a $2 million bail and someone else is charged with loitering, let's say this person is under house, they don't have a place that they can call home, like you and I, and like many of the other listeners, they may not have a place that they can call home. They may be sleeping in an underpass, and they may be charged with, let's say, trespassing, and they may be be given a $200 bill. Well, if the person charged with homicide can come up with $2 million, they get out and they go free. If the person charged with with loitering is not able to come up with $200, they stay detained. They stay in there. How is that an assessment of public risk? Is one more of a risk than the other? One can afford it while the other one can't. And here at the Minnesota Freedom Fund, we look at that as being fundamentally unfair and we have a problem with that. And we want to disrupt those type of practices.
0: Can you link this entire system to also policing? um, The state of Minnesota was and has been in national focus ever since the 2020 racial justice uprisings and the, and the police killing of George Floyd. It's the cops that go out and arrest the folks who are then charged, who are then jailed, and who then have to worry about whether they can make bail. What, bring that link forward for us.
1: Yeah, to me, it's bigger than just the notion of policing or the judicial system the criminal justice system as a whole is problematic in how they are engaging and how they have engaged and what a lot of their origins are in the first place. Like, Why did they exist? What are Black codes? What do those even mean? Right? When, when, when the practice of enslavement of Black bodies ended uh, in the United States, was there any other methodology used in order to still get that labor? And so we know that in the 13th Amendment, one of the carve-outs was that you cannot be enslaved. And in school, we stop there. We say, wow, the 13th Amendment prohibits slavery in the United States. That's great. But if we read on just a little bit, you just read one more sentence on, you'll see that it says, unless a person is duly convicted of a crime. And so if you are duly convicted of a crime, you can be and will be enslaved by the government. They have the right, and they do just that. In fact, I did time in prison as well, and you are required to work. If you refuse to work, you will be taken to the hole. There is no option of not working. You don't have that option. You'll be disciplined if you make a determination to not work, and the state has the right to compel you to work. Now, we know the origins of that. And we know those origins are within enslavement. They got to have bodies. Who's going to go and get the bodies to do the actual work? And then the Black Codes that was ultimately created, where it's, it's, if you're standing around where you're loitering, lock them up. If you lock them up, he can also be enslaved to go and do work. When sharecropping, right, was disrupted, the practice of sharecropping and how they were, were If we look back at all of the practices, they all point to the same place, to the same origins. right? And what we have decided to do as an organization was to have a historical view, to recognize that many of the policies and practices that we see today have their roots in slavery here in the United States. When we recognize that that's true, and it's an easy traceable line, there's easy causal connections well then we have an obligation to disrupt those practices. And that's precisely what we are doing is what we're going to continue to do because we look at this as vestiges of slavery. We look at some of the encoded um, um, language that is utilized. We look at the fabric of this nation and we say there must be fundamental shifts in how they are engaging with communities that look like mines. And this organization under my and Mireya's leadership, Mireya sejar uh, is my co-executive director We are going to do just that.
0: And so I imagine that's the reason why your organization isn't just focused on bail funds. It's called the Freedom Fund. It's a much broader definition uh, that uh, takes on the criminal justice system how can people support the work you're doing how can they replicate it outside of minnesota are there similar organizations etc uh, put, put your organizations work into a national context very brief briefly before we let you go
1: So quickly, there there are other uh, bail funds that are across the nation. Uh, If people really want to plug in, they can connect with the National Bail Fund Network. If they Google that, the National Bail Fund Network is going to come up. And they do really good work at helping people uh, launch and build out their own bail funds. They can also go to our website, mnfreedomfund.org. That's mnfreedomfund.org if they want to learn more information, if they want to donate to us, if they want to volunteer with us. Or if they want our thought leadership or our thought partnership to come and help them think through uh, some of the issues happening with their own um, local judicial systems. Just uh, contact us, we can help.
0: Thank you so much, Eliza, for joining us today. Best of luck to you. Really appreciate your time.
1: Thank you so much. We really appreciate the opportunity to come and speak with you and also uh, your listening audience. And again, I I definitely invite you to join us for the launch of our C4 uh, on February 7th.
0: Thank you so much. My guest has been Eliza Darris, co executive director of the Minnesota Freedom Fund and Minnesota Freedom Fund Action. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, risingupwithsonali.com, by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify, and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithsonali.